Game Studies study buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know back to the academic field of game studies and or or well, whatever uh-huh. we know about it. How about that? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Whatever's going through our minds right now. Whatever. You know what? We got a lot of shows. Uh they all have different uh openings, and without looking at something, I don't remember any of them. So, you know, sometimes you get off the dome. <laughs> this is episode twenty-seven. I am Cameron. I'm Michael. And uh, today, Michael, we're we're talking about something called ideology and the virtual whoa. city. Whoa, whoa! Can I tell you though? That's not all. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not just ideology in the virtual city. It's also colon video games, power fantasies, and neoliberalism. How how long of a book do you think you might need, Michael, in order to cover all of those topics? It's a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I had an e-book version of this book, so I don't really know how long it is. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, uh, it was like a hundred eighty five digit pages. Well, digit pages. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a paperback. I've got a paperback copy here. It's about ninety pages. No. Uh, including in notes, 93 pages. Okay. So, so, uh, you know, just to, and I say that just to temper some expectations from people at the beginning here. Now, I think that this book, uh, by, uh, by John Bales, I don't know if I said that before. It's by mm-hmm. John Bales. Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't know if it's the world's most comprehensive take in the, in the world, right? I don't know if you're going to get, in fact, I know for a fact, you're not going to get the world's deepest history of neoliberalism or ideology or any of those keywords that I just mentioned. And of course, he commits the cardinal sin of uh, spelling video games as one word. But um, he's a man after my own heart in that in that case. That's that's my reaction to video games as one word. Um, but I, I think that it, it is an interesting book. I think it's a mm-hmm. book that probably does a lot of the things that we were talking about to kind of get us here over the last couple episodes, questions about ideology, how they interface with games, what happens there, and uh, something that's not on the cover, Michael, uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about, is uh, this is heavily reliant on the devil itself, <laughs> psychoanalysis. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I was going to say that all of the things that show up in the title are things that are in this book and they are all part of part of the argument. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that should be highlighted um, is that this isn't a, a normal academic book like mm-hmm. the type we tend to cover. Uh, this is um, put out by Zero Books, which is I don't know how exactly you would describe what Zero is doing. Popular press is not even exactly right in that instance either. Mm hmm. Yeah, broader, uh, maybe academic ideas pitched to a, a broader audience. Right. And so uh, in that way, right, I, I I did not come into this book having uh, particular expectations on like deep history of neoliberalism or whatever. And, and for uh, what I think this book is setting out to do and what it's setting out to do in terms of teaching people about psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. uh, I think it actually does it pretty well. Mm hmm. Yeah, zero books is. Uh, I mean, people can can search and get a get an idea of them. But sometimes a um, controversial press, we we could say, mm-hmm. um, for for several different reasons, they uh, they pub- they're the publishers of Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies, uh, which is an, an obviously controversial book if you know anything about it. Um, 
and I would say just just based on some you know general ideas about it that um, I I don't get the sense that Zero as a publisher have a very strong uh, editorial hand, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, it seems pretty laissez-faire in in the sense of like people write their books and they are of varying quality um and varying uh, in the case of for example the nagel book of varying um citational uh backing mm-hmm. <laughs> uh to say the least right so so in trying to as a publisher the you know the most charitable thing that to say there is that you know they're they're being flexible they're trying to do things that other presses are doing but i think oftentimes that comes at the cost of Things that we on this show, at least, would would prefer be there, right? So citational mm-hmm. depth, in in depth conversations, things like that. So you know, if and I think you're exactly right, if this is bringing some really interesting things together, I, I'm previewing a little bit that it's also leaving some some gaps that I think are, um, you know, maybe not gaps that I like, you know, that, that kind of thing. But uh, a book is a book. Can't write a book for everybody. It's how it happens, and and I think this book is at least uh, really interesting and um, a good place to start for a lot of these ideas, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about the author? It looks like you've done some research here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the author is John Bales. Uh, he has a PhD in social theory from University College London. Uh, he is a freelance writer and critic. Uh, um, as far as as far as I'm aware, and this is going off of like his Twitter bio as well, uh, mm. I don't think he holds a specific academic position. I think uh, writing and freelancing is is uh, primarily what he's doing at this point. Um, he's published in you know Polygon and and Wireframe uh, and a couple of other places, EGM, I think. Mm. Um, so he's he's done some writing, kind of in a way, right? Uh, he's in a kind of a similar position to, to you and me as people who uh, talk about things from an academic uh, perspective and come from an academic background, but uh, our voices, I think, uh, tend to show up in more accessible outlets. And uh, it, it, it in, in this book, right, I think can be read as kind of trying to make a certain particularly academic way of interfacing with popular culture and popular culture objects, uh, making that accessible to people who don't necessarily have a PhD in social theory. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's very much a, um, it's kind of an onboard into a conversation about Mm -hmm. politics and aesthetics kind of, and, uh, kind of the meaning of pop culture. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want, I, I don't want to, um, that feels like dismissive of the book to be like, oh, it's trying to get us to understand pop culture. I feel like a character in white noise, but, uh, that is kind of, kind of what's going on here, um, through, through a few different things. So not, a, not a long book and, and, um, not a book that there's a huge amount of kind of conceptual disagreement with on my part, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there, we're going to have some interesting things to say about it. Um, any, any other stuff we want to chat about before we start talking about chapter one introduction? Uh, oh, I don't think we mentioned when this book was published. It was oh, 2019. Yeah. yeah. So it was very new. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, zero books has done several books on, Video games, um, but but none of them, you know, it's not like there's any cross citation going on here. So they've done that the Ludo Politics book. All of my like zero and repeater books are over here, but but there's a chair in the way, so I can't see them. Um, mm. 
you know, if you could, for example, Michael, project yourself into a 3D space that is the room I'm sitting in. Um, there's there's a chair in the way. Anyway, I could go on all day incorporating uh, this chair. But uh, what's happening in chapter one, Michael? Uh, so um, the introduction, and I think the the introduction and the next chapter might be the ones that we talked the most about because that's where kind of the method gets laid out. Uh, like I'll actually just start about the structure of the book, right? The, mm-hmm. the first chapter is an introduction. It gives us kind of a precis for the whole project. Uh, chapter two is unpacking the way that this book is going to use the terms ideology and also neoliberalism. Uh, And then the following chapters are all case studies. So there's a a case study chapter on Saints Row 4, uh, one on Grand Theft Auto 5, one on the first No More Heroes game. uh, And then the final case study chapter is on Persona 5. And then there's a a, a brief concluding chapter. Mm -hmm. So the introduction uh, is going to lay out kind of what this book is all about. And we begin, uh, fittingly enough, at the end, quoting a character from Persona 5 named Ryuji, who says that, uh, and this is the, the quote from the game, if you want to change the world, all you have to do is just look at it differently. However, uh, Bales uh, sort of unpacks this idea or follows it up and says, uh, you know, what's interesting about the character saying this is that Within the context of the game, uh, Ryuji and his friends, and this is another quote, ultimately haven't changed the world as much as they think because they didn't consider the deeper causes behind the social issues they resolved. Uh, And this is the way that we get introduced to how this book is going to uh, talk about ideology and the way that it structures uh, our interactions with the world. And especially, and this is very important, and this is why psychoanalysis comes in in the way that it does, uh, the way that ideology structures our fantasies. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the the thing, I guess, to sort of put up at the front is to explain how, like, what theory is, is uh, providing the method for this mm-hmm. book and, and how does that work? And that theory is drawn largely from uh, Slavoj Žižek and... Uh, to a slightly lesser, but also very important extent, um, uh, Frederick Jameson. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I kind of described this I think, somewhere in my notes, right? The it's it's the um, the I guess the other maybe piece of that that I noticed over the course of the book is it's the Zizekian or Jamesonian Zizekian Fisherian kind of mm-hmm. triangle. Um, Mark Fisher being being the third, um, and. Well, we'll talk about it in, in just a minute. But but yeah, I think those are the key markers. So so Marxist theorists who are really concerned about ideology in a broader mm-hmm. sense. And we could quibble about Fisher uh, exactly where, where he fits in there. But I think certainly Fisher gets to be the kind of mediator for Zizek and Jameson for talking about culture, at least. He mm-hmm. shows up in some key points in the book, although certainly not as much as the other two. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so the the introduction uh, is largely about sort of setting up certain queries uh, and making a case for the idea that video games, because they are power fantasies, uh, another quote here, embody a desire to confront certain boundaries or limitations in society. Uh, this might all sound very vague, uh, but I think actually it could be helpful if I explain a little bit about uh, everyone's favorite uh, like meme philosopher, Zizek, uh, if you're okay with that. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's good. Okay. Uh, the 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 only thing I want to say is that I think right before that the that kind of quotation that you read or that idea that you read, um, he specifically says that video games are useful. Mm-hmm. That's the word he uses because they they capture they index culture in a particular kind of way. So that's maybe another little piece of the background to it that they. Um, you know, and I'm sure you're about to say this with the Zizek too, but, you know, uh, any cultural object is kind of a crystallization of the mode of production that generated it, you know, of the ideology of the world that generated it. And so then, therefore, you know, you look into the crystal ball that is Reservoir Dogs or you look into the crystal ball that is Infinite Jest or whatever. I don't know why those are my, you know, the <laughs> 1990s uh, reigns heavy in my brain, but uh, but, you know. You know, and you look at Persona Five, and it tells you something about the world that that it emerged from. But uh, Zizek gets us much further down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> so, so by all means, right? Um, so the, the the like one of the big quotes that goes around on Twitter uh, from Zizek is is the idea of always eating from the trash can all the time. Uh, and of course we all say this because it's a very fun thing to say. It's very, uh, relatable to imagine ourselves eating from the trash can all the time. Uh, but that trash can, as Zizek tells us, and I think this is the part of the, part of the joke that never quite, uh, follows along with the way that it becomes a meme. That trash can is ideology. Uh, and what does that mean? So to understand what Zizek, uh, gets at, why Zizek in 1989, when he publishes his book, um, The Sublime Object of Ideology, and becomes the sort of big critical theorist. Uh, what it was he was getting at uh, that other kind of Marxist philosophers and theorists before him had not gotten at uh, was a new way of thinking about how ideology works. So the traditional understanding of ideology that comes out of Marx is uh, the what what they call false consciousness, right? That there is a there is a way that the world is really. And then there is a kind of fantasized relationship with the world uh, that gets laid over top all of that stuff uh, by various like social and structural forces. So in the case of, for instance, 19th century capitalism, the argument is something like, uh, you know, working uh, 16 hours a day in a factory from, you know, age like five until you either die or are just so hopelessly injured that you can no longer work again uh, and living in poverty and so on and so forth. All of this stuff is is clearly bad. So Marx asks, uh, you know, why isn't that, uh, why isn't the case that like, there's more of a a kind of spontaneous generation of workers movements? Uh, Why are there people who are workers or who are being exploited by capital and capitalism? Uh, who nonetheless take its side, right? Take the side of the thing that's exploiting them. Uh, and the the answer is that there is a, a kind of fantasy that gets overlaid on the way the world really is, right? People are able to ignore their objective conditions uh, because they have been fed some line about like personal responsibility or, uh, you know, how the, the, the company is more important than the individual or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Zizek comes along later uh, because this this idea that ideology is just a fantasy and and the the the, necess- the 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 clear sort of follow through right if this is how things are if this is the situation if the idea is just that people don't have the correct information 
and they you just need to like lift the veil from their eyes, right? Make them see through ideology and then they'll no longer uh, be influenced by it or they'll be able to work against it and, and better their conditions. This turns out to be really hard to do in quite these terms because it turns out people are very dedicated to kind of the, the fantasies uh, that, that seem to allow them to keep going. And so this is why Zizek says, uh, in, in the trash can scene, right, the famous trash can scene, what he is pulling from there is the John Carpenter film They Live, where the, the main character uh, of that film, uh, John Nada, gets a pair of, you know, magical science fiction sunglasses that when he puts them on, reveal uh, sort of the truth. All of the advertisements around him just say things like, you know, obey and marry and reproduce. And then money is just a piece of paper that says this is your God and so on and so forth. Uh, what this gets at that is important for Zizek is that this shows how ideology actually works, which is to say we normally think of ideology as the sunglasses that we put on, right? Like or like society puts the sunglasses on us and makes us see the world in a certain way. Uh, and Zizek says, no, actually, right? It is it is the ideological view that feels more natural to us. And when we start critiquing ideology, that's when we put on the sunglasses. And this is why ideological fantasies are so hard to fight, because they are uh, pre-critical and sort of they are our spontaneous feeling of relationship to reality. Okay, great. We're all good here. Anything you think I need to touch on uh, at that point? Uh, no. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you gotta wrestle your, your friend in order mm -hmm. to make them put on the sunglasses. Right. So that scene where, uh, 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 Nada is trying to make, um, Armitage, uh, put on the sunglasses so Armitage will see what he has seen and Armitage refuses, right? That is, this is, this is for Zizek, like the primal scene of like trying to do ideolo ideology critique on someone, uh, because, Armitage does not want to wear the sunglasses. It doesn't make sense that he doesn't want to wear the sunglasses. It's a very weird and innocuous request, uh, but he's very, very resistant to it. Um, and so the like Nada says to Armitage, you know, put on put on these sunglasses or I'm going to make you eat that trash can. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the, you know, what's really weird here is there's a uh, this book really leaves an opportunity on the table because Armitage is played by Keith David. Mm -hmm. Keith David is in Saints Row 4. Oh, he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's Vice President Keith David. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, there was definitely a connection there that could have been made. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, this is why Zizek says I am already eating from the trash can all the time. Right. Like what 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 Nada doesn't understand about Armitage's situation is that by not wearing the sunglasses, Armitage is already eating from the trash can. That is ideology. That is kind of just like the the spontaneous generation of like social relations or whatever um that we just kind of accept as common sense or as a given mm -hmm. uh that's that's kind of a big thing for zizek and it becomes a big thing for this book uh because this book then is zizek famously talks about movies a lot um you know i just talked about one of his famous analysis analyses of a of a film um yeah, Zizek, just to give people a little bit of context, uh, Zizek hits the Anglophone world as a film person first, really. I mean, I would say that his biggest splash is as a 
psychoanalytic psycho psychoanalytic Marxist critic of film mm-hmm. um, that gets taken up in literary studies as well. I, I think those are kind of his two primary domains, but really his celebrity right emerges out of his reading of film, particularly Hitchcock films. Um, but kind of basically, Zizek is doing what film studies was doing quite a lot of, and he's resuscitating psychoanalytic criticism that had um, maybe been less powerful in the 90s than it had been since the 70s, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that's kind of his like entree into the Anglophone world is, is, you know, he didn't emerge as just like this Marxist critic who talks about everything. He, he was kind of a pop culture critic, um, mm-hmm. you know, a media critic first, um, and then was adopted more broadly uh, out of there. So when, when, when we're talking about uh, Zizek and media objects, it's not because like that's just the thing that Michael and I are interested in. That's kind of the, the history of how Zizek is doing his kind of stuff before he starts talking about states and whatever the hell else comes into his mind at any given moment. <laughs> the Apostle Paul. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, the stuff on Paul. Anyway, never mind. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not getting down <laughs> this, a, a Zizek rabbit hole. I was gonna say this book. Uh, actually, I think quite thankfully does not get into uh, Zizek on the state or Zizek on the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is very much early career Zizek, kind of uh, the the media object Zizek, uh, because the thing that ends up being very important for for him and for the argument of this book. Uh, to return to the earlier idea of ideology as what we might call a naive view of ideology as just kind of a, a, um, an honest or naive misapprehension of one's circumstances, uh, one of the responses to that might be something like, well, if the world is bad, right, if the world is being structured by ideologies that are unjust or unfair or exploitative in some way, uh, why don't we just imagine a better world and start, you know, generating uh, kind of fantasies of places where things are more just, uh, where things work out in this way or that way? Um, you know, why don't we all just why don't we all just kind of like power through ideology by thinking of more and better ideology uh, or something like that? Right. Really, what happens in that moment is that you think and I'm, I'm speaking you in a, in a very general way here. Right. You think that you can escape ideology by retreating into your imagination. But this is a trick, Zizek will tell us. Because it is in fact, once we have unbound ourselves from reality, once we have sort of retreated into the space of uh, possibility that is the imagination, that's when ideology actually gets its teeth the deepest into you. Because you carry a lot, like ideology structures the your ability to understand and think about the world in such a fundamental way uh, that it is actually only in our fantasies that our ideologies become the most apparent and that the, the sort of like conflicts can be uh, made very, very explicit. So the, the really important uh, or like a really useful example uh, of this from, from the Zizekian uh, corpus is the film Seconds, uh, which is a John Frankenheimer film starring Rock Hudson. And it's about a guy who is kind of a middle-aged businessman who feels like his life has sort of like passed him by, right? He He's sort of like, he, he's gotten to middle age and he's sort of not really lived the life that he wanted to, to lead. He's kind of a, a traditional establishment square person. Uh, and this is, of course, like the late 60s. So the the summer of love is getting ready to happen, like all of the youth movements are kicking off. And and he feels very strongly sort of 
the difference between the life he's lived and the life he could have lived. And so he gets approached by this mysterious figure um, who represents a mysterious corporation who will allow him to basically restart his life. Uh, and so he he agrees to this. It's like a Twilight Zone kind of setup, right? He agrees to this uh, and they... Um, like fake his death and then like do plastic surgery on him. And he becomes a totally new guy played by rock Hudson. And he's kind of this bohemian artist. And he goes to all of these beach parties and he, he switches tracks in life, right? He, he literally achieves his fantasy of, Oh, I wish I had, you know, lived my life differently. And then he becomes the person who lived their life differently, except, except it turns out, uh, he is just as unhappy in the end, uh, as he was at the beginning. Uh, and this is because, uh, as, as Zizek would say, right, this is where Zizek steps in and makes his analysis, because fundamentally, he is just living two different flavors of like 1960s American capitalism, mm -hmm. right, which is a system that is fundamentally set up to uh, make you feel like you should be doing something more than you already are. You should be consuming more or you should be working harder or you should have done this or you should have done that. Uh, that there is uh, just sort of a, a, a limitless kind of movement in capitalism, right? Because that is the movement of capital itself of, of constantly sort of like moving to uh, new zones of capture and so on and so forth. Um, and humans are supposed to kind of just follow along. So... This is what Zizek will say, right? It is precisely when we think we have stepped outside of ideology by way of imagination, right? Once we have gotten into fantasy, uh, that is where ideology is going to catch us because we're going to be able to look at our fantasies and find the structuring mechanisms that are nevertheless like real world ideological. And this follows through into Bales's book, uh, again, as you said, because uh, video games index certain contradictions of like desire uh, and habits of thought in contemporary uh, neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, that, you know, they become um, little, uh, you know, I mean, quite literally micro worlds that tell us something about our world. Mm -hmm. um, his examples here, right? Um, but before we, well, he calls it, I guess, a thing that's worth noting here, right? On page five, he says the, that video games are, quote, ambiguous responses to neoliberalism. We'll talk about neoliberalism in just a second. And he says that they also simultaneously criticize existing social conditions and reaffirm certain common assumptions. So exactly like what you're saying, Michael, mm -hmm. that, you know, they're media objects that ultimately, that, that they don't offer a way out necessarily, mm -hmm. but they offer a perspective on our actual lived condition, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're kind of, they can't help but replicate the thing that they are in. Um, for, for Zizekian kind of people, right? Weirdly enough, a media object like a film or a video game or a book is kind of like a person uh, mm -hmm. in the sense that they it has its own uh, coherent, by which I mean completely incoherent, but but a self-satisfied uh, mm -hmm. ideology. It has a way it thinks the world. Um, and we can kind of track that backward, right, mm -hmm. in order to figure out um, how it comes to those things. Weirdly enough, I mean, and this is the thing for Zizek too, materialism doesn't matter here at all, right? I mean, it's a very un-Marxist thing in that, like, there's no, or there, actually there's a, I think, small discussion in this book. I don't have notes on it, but I think there's a small discussion on this book of, um, like, conditions of production and things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, where we might think in 2020, 
um, that a Marxist perspective on something might require us to talk about how it's made, where it was made, or the conditions under which it was made. There's none of that close reading here. There's no kind of material analysis because, as you're saying, for Zizek, that's kind of to the side, right? It's the moment, it's uh, ideological interactions that are most fruitful for analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because ultimately, at the end of the day, right, me playing Saints Row 4, the ideological interaction that's happening there really is very far abstracted from material conditions. And and there's a long Marxist tradition of trying to, of kind of figuring that out, right? That goes all the way back to chapter one of Capital uh, and commodity fetishism, right? The idea mm-hmm. that the commodity has a life of its own and that capitalism produces conditions under which I cannot think uh, or I don't have the capability to understand uh, where the actual thing is coming from. As Marx said, um, uh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, uh, when I eat a loaf of bread, I don't know where the wheat came from. Mm-hmm. Same same thing w- with uh, video games here. We we could quibble with that. Uh, you know, Marx's whole project is trying to undo that. And it's interesting that we get to 2020 or 2019 and uh, we're still deep in the commodity fetish. But I say all that to say the examples here are mm-hmm. uh, Saints Row 4, which gets its own chapter. All of these get their own chapter. Saints Row 4, Grand Theft Auto 5, No More Heroes, and Persona 5. And they get attached to four different responses, um, you know, four different kind of relationships to uh, the ideologies of capitalism, right? So Saints Row 4 is attached to hedonism. Uh, mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto 5 is attached to cynical self-interest. No More Heroes is attached to escapist defeatism, and Persona 5 is attached to reformism, meaning that all of these ideologies of capitalism have ways that they position an alternative. And Mm -hmm. for Bales, all of these alternatives just turn right back inside to capitalism. It's just a way of feeding back into the system itself. Right. And that is uh, that is the other kind of Zizekian move here, where one of the big points that Zizek is going to make about like what at the beginning of his career was probably what people were still calling late capitalism, right? That's the, the Jamesonian kind of term, mm-hmm. um, but maybe like postmodern capitalism or, or something like that uh, is that we, well, for a time, right? It was sort of believed that we had somehow entered a, a sort of like post ideological or non ideological society uh, because it was assumed after, especially like the, the fall of the Soviet union uh, that kind of, Global capitalism was the only game in town. That was all that there was going to be. And so we were really beyond ideology because there's really nothing more to quibble over. And I should say, you know, we should stop and think for a minute. Like, what is ideology? Well, it is, uh, I've called it a couple of things, like kind of the spontaneous relationship to the world, uh, uh, sort of the the exploitative uh, fictions of the world. Uh, but in a much more neutral sense, right, ideology could just be like your picture um, as an individual, but also like the picture presented by a group or an institution for what the world is and how that world works. So like uh, as as a person who works across history, right, uh, monarchy, the divine right of kings was an ideology because it said that there is a there is a God in heaven. Um, God is working in the world in specific ways. One of the ways that God works uh, is that he somehow, right, chooses a particular bloodline or family or uh, in, in some cases, right, just like weird collection of individuals 
um, who are going to become the monarch. They And because they are the monarch, it therefore proves that God has chosen them because monarchy is uh, homologous in some sense, right? The monarch lords over the kingdom in the same way that God lords over creation. Therefore, all monarchs are like akin to God. Uh, and so when a person becomes a monarch, and this is true, uh, this is this is the official ideology in Shakespeare's time. Um, when a person ascends to the throne of, of England, um, they have been in some sense chosen by God's providence, by the way that God has kind of designed the world. And they have claim, the monarch has claim to kind of a celestial, like a truly celestial divine authority. Mm hmm. And we may, you know, we, we look back at history and we see something like that and we think, oh, how how silly, right? How how weird that people would think that like, oh, just this random person got chosen to be king and that for that therefore somehow proves that they are chosen by God and so on and so forth. And the thing that is really important about the way that Zizek and the way that Bales is going to approach um, ideology in this book is that it shows like. It explains how that stuff works, even when people don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> like uh, it becomes a way of just like the world gets structured uh, because, you know, maybe everyone in Shakespeare's time is kind of like maybe people kind of like squinted at the divine right idea, but everyone else was saying it. So like, yeah, OK, let's let's go along with the idea that the king has divine right in the same way that uh, neoliberalism uh, and neoliberal capitalism does not have it, it is not centered, right? This is this is the thing that is important for Zizek uh, in, in other theorists of this time. It is not centered uh, in quite the same way uh, that like monarchical ideology is centered right through through this kind of top down, like God to king to state uh, to, to people within the state. Um, you know, neoliberal ideology is, is this idea that like, well, we've we've dispensed with the centralized uh, ideas of monarchy. Uh, and we have unleashed human potential because now people can do whatever they want as long as they have like the money to pay for it or to pay other people to do it or to, you know, get their startup costs covered or as long as they can convince people to pay them. And really what has happened, right, is we've we've pushed the the the, the ideology out of the centralized figure of God, king, state, whatever, and into the figure of like capital. And that becomes what uh, and I think this is actually a very useful term that that Bales comes up with is kind of like background ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that even though we aren't all of us spending our days thinking about like the health and well-being of capital, uh, it is still structuring our day-to-day -day interactions, our day-to-day -day choices. And this has a kind of influence on our fantasies and the ways that, uh, not the fantasies that we want to create, but also the fantasies that are created for us in film, in video games. Uh, and then we, like when, and so when we play video games, we take on this power fantasy, and this is uh, Bale's explicit argument, um, you know, games are supposed to make us as the player feel like we are doing something or solving problems or we're, you know, just powerful in some sense. Uh, but what are the ways in which our power in these games nevertheless gets structured or curtailed in ways that maybe we notice and maybe ways that we don't notice? And like, what is what does that say about the background ideology of neoliberalism, right? What assumptions even into our fantasies are controlling our ability to imagine what the world uh, might look like? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he, the way that he phrases this is that the, these games are, quote, unconscious attempts to resolve social issues that they cannot recognize or formalize. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's happening, but but we don't really talk about the way that it's happening. Right. Um, I just I just said it in a very I, uh, like um, uh, 19th century British way issues <laughs> issues. <laughs> Um, but but yeah, um, you know, and and I think that basically what what you've talked about. I mean, I guess there are a couple of things here that that uh, haven't been addressed that are just kind of flavor for these first couple chapters. Uh, the first one is that cognitive mapping shows up, which is mm-hmm. the exact reason I thought about this book um, from the Kaleha book that we read. Um, right, cognitive mapping is the idea that that. Um, in under the conditions of capitalism kind of after the post-war period right so what gets called late capitalism postmodern capitalism um our contemporary neoliberalism more broadly um by post-war i mean post-1945 post-world war ii um in that right this is a frederick jameson argument that the idea is that we need to be able or, or human beings are, are comforted by the idea of being able to think the totality right so think the social conditions so the example that you used earlier is that at one point theoretically you know in the early modern period someone could think of themselves in relationship to the king and have a sense of what it meant to be uh, in a society in a particular kind of way mm-hmm with the expansion of capitalism in the post-45 world, what we have lost is the ability in the expansion of globalism. What we have lost is the ability to think the totality. Uh, mm-hmm. We cannot think the the structure, and we can't even envision the structure of capitalism and the social relation that we are in. We are in a network of power that is so extensive and weird and expansive that we that it's very difficult for us to get our hands around it. And so for Frederick Jameson, and this is a simplification, but I think it's an, a useful simplification, for Jameson, in right, our inability to, to think the totality means that we, ha- we are constantly trying to think the social relation in different kind of ways, and media objects like films or video games or novels or whatever give us an ability to think that. TikTok is probably another uh, you know, way it's done. Twitter is absolutely the way it's done. And so what we do is we create these kind of allegories for... Um, the totality. So we we are trying to think our map of relations in the world, and we see something in film or we see something in video games, and we allegorize our relationship in the world to that kind of thing. So, for example, uh, when you see people uh, talk about Elon Musk as Iron Man, which is the thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. this, this is a meme. Maybe more a couple years ago, but it certainly was a meme for a while of talking about the the similarities between Iron Man and Elon Musk, and and you know the super genius and and capitalist kind of thing. That that is this kind of moment of attempting to map the actual awful relations of our world in a way that's understandable to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the way, here's another example. Uh, in the way that people are constantly trying to think of themselves in relationship to Harry Potter characters mm-hmm. or houses, that is a form of kind of proximity cognitive mapping. Um, you know, we we see the the thing in the world, you know, and we think about you know whether Hillary Clinton is a Ravenclaw or not, and uh, maybe she. I don't know that. Is that true? That, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, you know, I want to get my facts straight. Um, but uh, I, you know, I don't know Harry Potter very well. 
But uh, but that's all to say, right? That's what's happening. So to think cognitive mapping in this scenario, right, is a much more condensed and, and specific way, right? We see relationships in the world in something like Saints Row 4, and we're able to map our relationship onto that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I want to say here at the very, uh, you know, kind of talking about these chapters is that very few game study scholars are cited in this book kind of across the board. I'm going to, mm-hmm. I want to talk about kind of the politics of citation in this book uh, a little bit later when we're talking about the chapters. But what's interesting is that Lev Manovich and Ian Bogost are cited here as kind of like, you know, uh, Manovich for talking about the relations to people in, or uh, players in 3D space and then Bogost for procedural rhetoric. And that's kind of like, the due diligence, the extent of due diligence around game studies that happens here. It's like, mm-hmm. so So to really, I, I say that to say, um, this is a book that is interested in just kind of reading directly the video games themselves and then the, the kind of Marxist theory around it. It is not interested in passing through game studies. And I would not say that really this is a game studies book in any way other than it's interested in game studies, right? It's not part of the kind of intellectual network of game studies authorship. And I think that uh, is a product of it being a kind of pseudo popular press book, right? It's a zero book. It's not a, not a uh, academic press book. Um, if this were an academic press book, there would be a much kind of larger barrier um, or, or, you know, frankly, gatekeeping around mm-hmm. actually discussing the contributions of other game study scholars. So I, I, I just don't want anyone to read this and be like, oh, what's going on here? This is kind of part and parcel of the way that these kinds of books are written mm-hmm. um you know just kind of more about the big idea and the method less about the nitty-gritty citations mm-hmm. of uh you know other people and i think it's worth probably pointing out as we get into the chapters that this is this is a characteristic of this mode of analysis uh even zizek uh when he when Zizek talks about films, he will talk about them in very broad terms that if you have personally seen the film, you may sort of respond like, well, wait a minute. Uh, what about this one scene or this bit or that bit? Um, and that is really not important for what this argument and this type of argumentation is doing, uh, which is to say, like, uh, the, the, the fundamental goal here is is to read the broad structure of the fantasy that underpins a particular instance of of, uh, narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say actually what this book does, what it does really well um, is show how games uh, can, can support that type of reading just as much as, as films. Yeah. And, and, but, but on the other side, if you read this and you're very frustrated about it, um, that's a, that's a normal feeling to feel. (laughs) Yeah, Um, because, you know, maybe this is kind of talking about, uh, you know, different academic trajectories, but uh, this was much more acceptable in psychoanalytic literature of 30 years ago than it is now. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think very many people are being trained in these kind of broad readings and and academic production has really changed, at least in the United States, toward being much closer or much more focused around close reading, formal analysis, things like that, that certainly are involved, right? But very rarely, although sometimes he does, right? Uh, but very mm-hmm. rarely is Zizek reading shot sequences, for example, or reading individual images. He's much more interested, as you're saying, Michael, in reading kind of the the structuring fantasy of the, of the, the whole thing. Um, and, you know, that that's not for me, but no. it is what it's. It is. It's how I cut my teeth. 
mm-hmm. if, if you notice me talking a lot more this episode, it's because I was I was a baby Zizekian. So. Uh, little bitty baby Michael, two mm-hmm. years old, big old bushy beard, a uh-huh. strong desire for the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and just respecting the shit out of Lenin. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta. Good night, Lenin. Um, uh, have we have we given a? I, I guess we've given a, a a sufficient definition of neoliberalism. Well, I was going to return to um, the way that Bales puts it, which I think is very <laughs> illustrative. Um, and this is like again, right? One of the things that I would actually say that is really good about this book is that if you have like listened to Zizek or like watched one of a one of Zizek's movies or tried to read a Zizek book, and you're still kind of like, I have no idea what's going on. This is actually a really good, and if you're more familiar with video games and how video games work, uh, this is a good sort of intro point to like start thinking backward uh, and realizing how Zizek's system works. Because mm-hmm. in, in, it's about this book makes Zizek accessible, is what I will say. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but uh, one of the things that uh, Bales points out with the way he describes neoliberalism. Uh, and this probably sounds familiar because we are all this is this is a premise here. We're all neoliberal subjects to some extent. Uh, I'm just going to quote capital moves to take advantage of lucrative opportunities. And we are supposed to be endlessly flexible and continually reinventing ourselves to keep up. So uh, neoliberalism is this particular form of contemporary capitalism that is about sort of the like it, it converts everything into something that can be calculated, right? Every Everything in the world has kind of a calculable value or every choice you can make has a kind of calculus behind it. Like there's, and, 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 and I mean this in like a very particular mercenary way, not just that like sometimes you do things and that means you can't do other things. It's, it's more about quite literally, um, neoliberalism says your job on this earth is to maximize uh, yourself in every way possible, right? Uh, make, make a whole bunch of money, um, but also be happy, right? Be as happy as possible, have a a family and keep that family going. Um, you know, be a good member of your community, uh, do all of the, like, there's a very particular vision of the good life under neoliberalism, which is about, uh, being the best possible version of yourself being maximized, uh, in all of these ways, uh, you know, in, in a way that perhaps uh, might suggest you're experiencing a constant flow state uh, to, to <laughs> gesture back toward uh, uh, another book that I think is very uh, strongly um, underpinned by this ideology. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, so that's just, well, just one thing I want to want to add on that. Right. Because okay, I think all that is right. The, the one thing I want to add is that all of this is mediated through individualism. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the liberalism part of it. Right. So it's about um uh, individual property rights, what a person can accrue and what a person can do. So we don't talk about, say, um, what a social group can do, right? So class consciousness is out entirely in neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, success and failure, I think you're right, Michael, in pointing out that uh, very quantifiable, very much about getting as much as possible and maximizing capability. But that's not maximizing capability by, for example, joining a union, right? Mm-hmm. Neoliberalism requires us to think uh, that the relationship to the world in the self is between one and one. Like I am a person, there is no society, or if there is a society, it's just the name that we give to competition in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am me, I am part of my family unit, but ultimately my responsibilities are about maximizing my capability as a human being. So 
everyone is an entrepreneur. Uh, if you're in the quarantine and you have all the time in the world and you haven't started your business, then that's your fault, right? That, that's mm-hmm. something that we saw a lot of on social media, you know, back in March. Um, it, it is this idea that the ultimately uh, every human being is entering the marketplace of everything, of ideas, of actual markets, of property accrual of the government, which is just a way of talking about a different type of market. Uh, We enter into those things as equals uh, with opportunities given to us. And it is, uh, you know, uh, upon us and only us to take advantage of those things. And if there are unequal outcomes in the world, then that is just because you did not take advantage of the opportunities that were given to you and available to you. And you might be listening and, and thinking, um, of the thousand different ways of which that is absolutely incorrect and wrong, <laughs> you would be right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would be correct. And yet, and, and you know, Michael, this is what you were talking about earlier. That's how ideology works, right? Uh, even if you disagree with the things I just said, there are a thousand different ways in your day-to-day life that you are operating on those basic assumptions, uh, the systems you participate in, the ways you think about the world, the ways that we are all deeply individualized, uh, hot take machines on social media, all these different things, which isn't to say like, oh, I'm compromised and, and I have to, you know, I don't know, uh, become a hermit in the woods. It's not about that, but it is about recognizing that you are, ideology is a thing you believe in and it's not like you choose it, right? So we mm-hmm. are all neoliberals in the sense that we live within neoliberalism and it structures all of our lives in ways that we cannot control or in ways that we can't think constantly. Um, so that's a, the, that's all to say that ideology and neoliberalism, being the name of the second chapter, those things are tied in with one another in the year 2020 in a way that are inextricable from one another. Um, and our capability of recognizing the inaccuracy or the... Um, insufficiency of neoliberalism to change the world on one hand does not preclude us from uh you know completely embodying it on accident and unconsciously on the other hand we are neoliberalism functions as an ideology by compelling us to do both in fact most of the time exactly and uh just the the sort of other kind of bit of that in addition to everything being deeply individualized, right? Sort of the, the starting point for neoliberal ideology is that people are individuals, individuals exist in the world, um, kind of prior to like the, the neoliberal ideological claim, right? Is that individuals exist in the world prior to ideology itself, right? Mm-hmm. That there is a kind of objective sense in which people are going to be naturally occurring individuals and they're going to think in ways that are going to give right, uh, rise to market societies, right? And those kind of patterns of exchange. And again, historically, you look at what's going on around the world or like what has happened around the world, and you know this isn't true, right? Not every human society has become a market society. Uh, but the, the neoliberal kind of line is that this is how reality is. This is what we are. Um, and it is your responsibility to maximize your productivity and your enjoyment and so on and so forth. And if you stop to think about like, well, wait a minute, what if we did some collective action? What if I joined a union? The neoliberal response is going to be like, ah, ah, ah. you remember that everything in the world goes back to the individual. 
And the thing about collective action is that once you've got a bunch of individuals working together, then suddenly uh, you've got a system that is trying to, like multiple individuals are going to try to control other individuals. And no matter how, how good your aims are, no matter what it is you want to accomplish, you are going to fail because of human error. And so Bales points this out. This is kind of one of the founding contradictions of neoliberalism. On the one hand, the individual is in theory, all powerful. The individual can or should be able to do all this stuff. And if they can't do it, it's because of a bad decision that they've made. Um, but then on the other hand, the second that people start working together, uh, suddenly humans become like hopelessly corrupt and they're always going to fail and nothing is going to work. So we shouldn't even bother with collective action. Instead, we need to turn everything over to the impersonal force of the market, which is this thing that allegedly exists uh, sort of naturally and apart from humans. Mm -hmm. so. And, and it, you know, it, it writes itself backward in time, right? So we don't talk about um, thousands of striking workers, uh, we talk about union leaders, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and we don't talk about the uh, destruction of the union and U.S. economics from the 1920s-ish uh, through to the 1980s. We don't talk about the, the continual violence and assault that's being done by industry, by the U.S. government, all these different factors in order to break those things. We talk about corruption from the inside, destroying them. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so so there's a way that neoliberalism that, that all ideologies. Right. Once you're inside of them, they project themselves forward and backward through time. Human life will not get better than it is until we accept the marketplace in the future. Right. So uh, ultimately, free market ideas are the only way to get a, a greener earth, basically. You know, that that's one thing. So so we need to create heavy government subsidies for wind power. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't need a Green New Deal. So that's like one way of thinking ideology in the future, this neoliberal ideology in the future. And then backward in time, all the failures of the American labor movement were because of individuals who were unable to keep it together, basically. So w once you're in a thing, everything gets kind of absorbed into it and interpreted through it. You know, it's it's the trash can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. That is the trash can that you have always been eating from and will always be eating from. Um mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, and that's sort of what you might wonder happens when you start looking at video games in this way. Mm -hmm. The, the only, uh, only, so that's kind of the first two chapters. Um, and like you said, Michael, I think that's the bulk of our conversation here is really talking about what's being offered here and then talking about how they apply to video games. But I, I do, did want to ask you if you wanted to clarify what Zizek means by a double-sided unconscious, which kind of matters mm -hmm. at the end of chapter two. Yes. This, okay. So this is good. Um, so uh, Zizek, in addition to being a Marxist, is also, uh, as we've covered, a psychoanalyst or a psychoanalytic critic. Uh, we've talked about psychoanalysis on this show before. A couple episodes ago, uh, I gave sort of an overview of Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, and as you could probably maybe tell from the way that I was talking through Freud in, in the Susan Laxton episode, um, I'm not big on Freud. The reason I'm not big on Freud is because I'm a Lacanian. Uh, and turns out Zizek is a Lacanian too. So what you need to know about how Zizek uh, comes to psychoanalysis is he picks up uh, the thought of Jacques Lacan, who is a French psychoanalyst, um, sort of a post-structuralist uh, of like 1950s, 1960s. And what Lacan does to Freud 
is that he goes back to Freud and he takes all of the claims that Freud was making about uh, sort of organisms, right? If you, uh, Freud was very much um, sort of, he was not a scientist, uh, but he was a uh, scientistic thinker in that he is, he is fundamentally interested in like the human being as kind of an animal, as kind of an organism, um, that reacts to natural stimuli in certain ways and so on and so forth. Lacan rereads Freud and he takes kind of the, the moves of psychoanalysis and he extrapolates them out from a uh, kind of like from an idea of like, this is, this is what the human animal does or wants. And it becomes um, almost a, a, a poetics, a way of thinking about the structures of our ways of thinking and the ways that we understand ourselves as individuals. Uh, and yeah. one of the, well, just one thing to say really quickly is people might be familiar with hearing Lacan described as a structuralist. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you might hear him refer to as a post-structuralist. Um, Michael, when you're saying a poetics there, it, that, that accounts for both, right? So, mm -hmm. so in some ways, as Michael, as you're about to talk through, Lacan is going to provide a very clear structure through which human psychology works, and then is going to also provide us with a way of understanding how human beings transcend that structure <laughs> um, or get it complicated in really uh, weird ways, right? And when it, especially when it blows up to a societal phenomenon. So I, I'm just trying to give some orienting ideas for people who might be like, well, I've heard Lacan position this way or that way. More likely than not, uh, the answer to uh, a contradiction in Lacan being presented to you is in fact accurate. And he is saying both of those things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, an example uh, of this, um, is that, so for Freud, uh, the, the human being, right? The individual or the subject or what have you, it's, it's a little animal. It wants various things. Uh, society comes along and tells you, no, you can't have all of your desires fulfilled at all times. Right. And this is, this is how you become individualized. This is how you become a person is that you, you get separated from uh, the, 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 the immediate satisfaction of your own wants. And you have to learn to repress certain instincts or certain desires uh, and things like that. Uh, Lacan looks at the situation and he's like, all right, this is true, but it's not just true in the sense that like everyone, if they were left on their own devices, would grow up to be like uh, a sort of like, just like a cannibal murderer or something, right? Like, let's just do the the worst possible read, right? Like, let's say that, you know, war of all against all is true. And that uh, without sort of societal kind of like sculpting or molding, uh, people would just be uh, horrible little monsters. Let's say that that is true. Um, Lacan comes in and he says, well, really, like what the, the mistake that Freud makes is that he assumes that everyone's desires are just going to kind of naturally be things like, uh, you know, I want I want to feel like total kind of oneness with my surroundings and specifically like my family unit. Right. That consists of my mother and the Oedipus complex and this, that and the other. Um, really, uh, if we think of this, Lacan says, as a kind of poetics, uh, the, as I've already pointed out, um, what is it about the structure of uh, being a person, of being inducted into language that 
is really the truth of the Freudian situation. That is to say, when we are uh, little tiny babies who don't have language in our heads that mediates how we experience and see reality, uh, when I when I literally do not have the thing that allows me to think of myself as something different from the thing that I am looking at, uh, if I just assume or like, and again, right, this is kind of a founding myth. This is not necessarily true, but this is kind of how this uh, method or program justifies itself. If if the, the Freudian idea of like the unbounded desiring little uh, creature, if that's really this uh, inability of the creature to understand that it is something apart from the world that it inhabits, if language is the thing that comes in and slices us out of our immediate sense of connection with the world, uh, then this is a fundamental uh, part of what it is to be a human being who lives in society, right? This is how this is how like the particulars of repression work. We become dissociated, or rather, our desires, our ability to desire, becomes mediated by a social apparatus. The first of which is language, and that opens up the doors to uh, various other codes, uh, sexuality and gender, and and so on and so forth. For Zizek, then, uh, the way he ends up reading Lacan is that we are desire is is a response to a negative. Uh, that is to say, desire in Lacan is a lack. It is a thing that you do not have because language has interceded between you and your ability to uh, sort of spontaneously and immediately enjoy your existence. So, uh, and the thing is, you're never going to get that back because you have already had because you already have language because you have been mediated. The the only thing that would get rid of that mediation of language would be like total psychic disintegration. Right. You do not remain a, a sort of like thinking cognizant subject in the way that we tend to think of that um, without kind of uh, having this this distance from, uh, you know, the, 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 the facts of reality. The unconscious then for Zizek is uh, a way that because because this becomes the fundamental structure of subjectivity of personhood or psychology or whatever uh what this means is that our desires do two things one they are an attempt to compensate or overcome this primal originary sense of lack right the idea that something has uh in interceded between us and the world or that something has been taken from us that's one thing the other thing is that the fulfillment of desire would, in fact, destroy us. And so our our attempts to fulfill our own desires in reality are always going to come up short. We are never going to uh, have as much money as we want. We are never going to feel totally at peace with the world um, because we are in some sense fundamentally alienated from the world. And so the that's part of what the unconscious is, is doing uh, here and what uh, Zizek is talking about when he says that it's double-sided, right? The, the unconscious is constantly spurring us to fulfill our desires, but it's also constantly like rerouting us to desires that are not going to, uh, like desires that are going to, um, that cannot be fully settled or satiated. And so what ideology has to do then is explain uh, both 
why we desire the things we desire. Why do I want this sports car or this type of house or so on and so forth? Uh, but then it also has to explain why whenever I fulfill a desire, why is it that that desire doesn't settle? Like, why why does sort of my want keep going? Uh, so a, an effective ideology is going to have um, an answer to both of those questions. An effective ideology is going to be able to uh, finagle the, the double-sided unconscious of the person who wants to uh, fulfill a desire, but then is going to be able to explain, like, why that desire is going to be inevitably disappointed. Mm -hmm. and, and in the context of the Bales book, right, this is... It, you know, this is kind of presented a little bit here at the end of chapter two, and it's not really, I wouldn't say fleshed out, certainly not to the degree to which you just fleshed it out. And, and I think that that's to the book's benefit. I think it's, you know, kind of, uh, that's a lot of headway to make, you know, at the end of a chapter. Uh, it's implicit in what's happening in the rest of the book. It's implicit because um, each of the examples here give us exactly what you just said, right? So it sets up a potential liberation and then demonstrates how that liberation fails. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a way of thinking our way outside of neoliberalism, but ultimately it collapses back inside of it. Um, and I think that what you're demonstrating or what your explanation just helped us with, Michael, and tell me if you think this is right, but it's also uh, perhaps one of the problems of psychoanalytic reading is that the fundamental belief of psychoanalysis is that you're going to collapse back into this ideological relationship. Mm -hmm. um, like there, there is no, as, as is said here and as is said in a million different places, right? There is no outside or there is no alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, can, can psychoanalysis give us a true outside for this type of ideology or is it just about, you know, palliative kind of relationships <laughs> where we're figuring out our best way to live within it? Well, I mean, I would say this, this particular form of psychoanalysis, uh, it definitely has the flaw that you just talked about, right? And this is one of the reasons why I started out as a little baby Zizekian and over time became less satisfied with this, this way of doing analysis. Not to say that I don't think that this this type of analysis is useful. Again, I, I actually like this book, um, but I got to a point as kind of a writer and, and thinker uh, where I was interested in something that wasn't just constantly exposing the contradictions of of neoliberal capitalist fantasies because after a certain point it's like yep they got them mm -hmm. um and i uh you know it it's exactly what you were saying where uh, once you kind of learn this mode of reading what it does is it allows you to look at just about anything and start seeing these contradictions, right? Here is where this thing grasps for something utopian, something outside of ideology. And then here is how that uh, utopian impulse is uh, undercut by whatever remainder of ideology is is, is in, in the object. Um, and sort of the idea, I think, is supposed to be that we understand where these arguments get undercut, but then we take sort of close examination of the kernels of utopian impulses. Uh, but the thing about this is that it never quite gives you anything to do with those utopian impulses other than to note that they are there. There is no way to sort of build a politics out of those utopian uh, impulses uh, that is ever really given in, in like Zizek. Yeah, and I think that that maybe is the difference between, you know, to, to kind of do the fine-grained, uh, you know, weird analysis we do on the show. That's maybe the difference between Zizek's uh, deep, you know, psychoanalytic Marxism and something like Frederick Jameson, who I think, you know, also is deeply caught up in the world of, of uh, literature, film. I don't think 
Jameson's ever written about a video game, but maybe he has. Um, uh, but um, oh gosh, what would he? Anyway, I uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking about what what he would say about uh, video games. But um, what, what's a little bit different there, right? Is that Jameson loves to talk about uh, not just um, you know utopian in- impulses and compromised art objects, but art objects that are, break the world in some kind of weird way, right? So he really loves Robert Altman. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of Altman's incoherent world sometimes, right? Robert Altman's very famous for having these sound mixes where you can't really determine who is supposed to be talking or what you're supposed to be paying attention to and kind of cuts that kind of go everywhere and, and break with uh, normal cinematic uh, uh, aesthetics. Uh, and for Jameson, right, that is this kind of particular kind of um, anti-capitalist utopia, although I think we could certainly argue that uh if there's one thing capitalism's good at it's absorbing its contradictions which is also i guess a zizek point but Mm -hmm. um but but yeah that's maybe my you know if we're thinking about people who enable this kind of reading in my world i much prefer the frederick jameson analysis that kind of thing to the zizek and to be frank i think that jameson is a much better kind of close reader much better at paying attention to, to detail uh, my favorite Zizek uh, anecdote is in the uh, the interview, that massive interview he did uh, with The Guardian right before Living in the End Times came out, um, mm-hmm. where uh, he revealed two like really interesting things. One was that there was a massive Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 poster on his wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other one, which is that he wrote his like half chapter on Avatar, only having watched the trailer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is very good but but which tells you like how how little actual material right you need to do this analysis um because as you said before that that's not the point right mm-hmm. the, the the point is the structure and ideology speaking of structure and ideology let's talk about unless you've got anything else to say let's talk about chapter three saints row four okay have you played saints row four i have not actually I've played Saints Row 4. Let me let me give you the let me give you the uh the lowdown. Uh I believe you begin as the president. Mm-hmm. This is my memory. You begin okay. as the president. Uh Keith David is your vice president. Um the the first decision you get to make a binary choice at the beginning of the game, and it's something like cure cancer or get rid of world poverty. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so like that's the kind of thing you're doing. You and all your buddies are abducted, you know, all the people from Saints Row 3 are abducted by aliens. Um, Those aliens blow up the planet Earth and then create a simulacrum, a kind of completely fake VR Earth, uh, uh, not even Earth, but just Steelport, the city of Steelport that you're from, uh, into which you inject yourself to kind of liberate it, liberate the simulation from the aliens. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the game. Mm -hmm. You're also a toilet for several missions. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the whole thing. Yeah, that's utopian hedonism. Become a toilet. Uh, yeah, well, uh, if you know, that's the 1990s when we were eating out of the trash can. Uh, <laughs> in, in the in the 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 new millennium, we we're becoming the toilet all the time. Shishak <laughs> also has a long form reading of different toilets and what it tells yes. us about different cultures. Yes, he does. <laughs> based, based on how much you like looking at your own feces. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, okay, that's Saints Row 4. Uh, having, having played it, what do you think of, well, we've already talked about basically the types of readings that, that this book is setting us up to, to expect. Uh, what is the challenge to neoliberalism that this game 
puts forth, first of all. And then second of all, how does it then also uh, fall to neoliberal ideology? Yeah, so the reading here is that um, it, it's a little bit different than the other readings, actually, because it is so well. Let me say this. So the strategy here that's being uh, laid out is one of hedonism, or that's the coping mechanism. And the reason mm -hmm. that's the coping mechanism or the kind of fallback strategy here is that on one hand, Saints Row 4 offers a power fantasy of absolute freedom. So there is a, you know, big brother authoritarian government structure, you know, this, this massive uh, thing that can tell you what to do, right? It's aliens that literally control the simulation, uh, this this game very much has kind of a, an Ubisoft style unlocking parts of the map system where you're destroying these kind of big structures and fighting these big structures in order to liberate parts of this, this city. Um, and uh, so you do that and you can buy things or you can buy upgrades, clothes, weapons, all this kind of stuff. So you can constantly kind of participate in the system to do whatever you want. Right. So this game famously has, you know, uh, the dubstep gun where you can shoot people, and make them dance. They can't control mm -hmm. themselves. I think this game has the dildo bat from uh, Saints Row 3 where it's a giant sex toy that you can hit people with. Um, you know, it has wrestling moves that you can do to people. So it's this <laughs> pure like play space that a lot of people find very liberating and powerful in a lot of different ways. Uh, also has a very robust character creator. The character creator for Saints Row 3 and 4, I think. Um, is one that kind of gets celebrated and talked about a lot because it doesn't um, uh, it, it allows one to play with gender in ways that other uh, other character creators don't. So on one hand, it, it is this kind of fantasy of being able to stick it to the man, right, mm -hmm. in whatever way humanly possible. Um, but on the other hand, right, it ultimately is uh, falling back into a system, and all of this, right, is, is Bales' reading of the thing, right? I'm, I'm reconstructing the argument just in case... People are confused. Um, so on one hand, it offers us that kind of utopian vision. On the other hand, it's a completely false world. It's a pure simulacrum. Uh, it, it is not uh, good or positive in any kind of way. And ultimately, uh, that hedonism, right, that, that pure joy at doing whatever the hell you want is fully confined within that system, uh, is confined <laughs> within a system of neoliberalism. There's no way of imagining uh, oneself out. Um, and so, uh, uh, Bales calls it quote, irresponsible, violent pleasure seeking. Um, and it's presented as the way to overcome, overcome social antagonisms, right? So the idea of control versus liberty or something like that, that, that pleasure seeking allows us to get beyond it. But in fact, it all rests on the ideology of neoliberalism, uh, in the last instance, as a Marxist might say. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, the way that he says it is that there is a difference between a political position and a political program, meaning that that ultimately it's a game that advocates for personal freedom, which is good in a general sense. I don't think anyone wants to be unfree, um, but it has no political program. It doesn't allow mm -hmm. us to think about ways that we could resist or destroy or undermine this broader system of control that is neoliberal market based ideologies. Mm -hmm. That is the reading of of Saints War that is presented to us. So fun, hedonistic, but ultimately fun hedonism does not change the, the conditions under which we live. And so it is insufficient. Mm -hmm. So then what are we supposed to be looking for, might I ask? Looking for uh, it, 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 in what sense? Well, if we're if if this mode of reading is about sort of. Um, 
you know, finding these ambivalences and mm-hmm. being able to recognize some part of it as, you know, the uh, an artifact of ideology. So, for instance, the fact that uh, uh, and Bales points this out again, this is part of part of his argument. The aliens kind of are figured in. Oh, they are figured in the kind of vocabulary of like the way neoliberalism talks about central planning and authority figures. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. I mean, they they um, are, uh, you know, their inability to control everything is our fantasy about the Soviet Union and in, in the United States. Right. That mm-hmm. uh, ultimately it's this this group of, of conspiratorial controllers who try to put everyone under their thumb and ultimately they cannot do that. And so then therefore the Berlin Wall falls. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it very uh, easy post Cold War political allegory, mm-hmm. um, you know. Because we were talking earlier about how uh, cognitive mapping, right? We look for allegory to, to structure our world. This is a way in which that is working. So, but your question was, uh, what are we looking for? Can you, uh, sorry, I'll let you finish. Oh, yeah. So then uh, if that's the case, then if that's the part of this on um, that, that falls short, what is the, what is the thing that gives us a political horizon to look toward? Um, the I guess the... I don't know that Bales answers this question directly. What I would say is it is the subject position of hmm, it is the way that we take control of a character and interact with the 3D space in the world. That would be what I would say is the implicit answer here. I see. But I don't know if that would be what Bales would say, unless Hmm. you have a quotation you're thinking of that Uh, you don't remember. I do not. I was just thinking. So one of the reasons we, we've already said that this is uh, that this response, right, is this utopian hedonism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is sort of the kernel of uh, enjoyment, let's say, or yeah. or the the thing that in, in kind of the, the broader structure of the argument that is going to lead us toward like that is, I think, uh, sort of what we need, what we are supposed to keep in mind when we, as we start thinking about like, well, what is a world without uh, neoliberalism structuring it look like mm-hmm. uh, it looks something like utopian hedonism right but it can't be this type of utopian hedonism uh, because as we've already said that this is this is like predicated on on a already a neoliberal framework and so this is the question I always have with these types of or, uh, this type of argumentation is that to what extent like how am I supposed to extricate uh, the kernel of whatever sort of impulse uh, for freedom um, from from the frame of ideology? Like, how how is it yeah. that I carry forward this idea of hedonism uh, in into like like uh, not necessarily a political goal, right? Because I don't think it stays being called hedonism in, in that case, right? But uh, is it just the 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 impulse for freedom for people to to do as they would like? Uh, or, or what? I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a, a big question for any kind of... I, I think that's broader than even this book, and I, obviously you know that, but mm-hmm. but to, to kind of, you know, phrase it for, for the listener, um, I think that's broader than this book because there's this kind of question always with this kind of reading of anything or even this kind of political program of what is the difference between self-determination and freedom or, mm-hmm. or rather, maybe maybe this is the, the best way of saying it. What is self-determination or freedom outside of liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. By liberalism, I mean a kind of Lockean individualism, you know, participatory 
um, you know, participatory individualism mm-hmm. um, in market logics or whatever. Um, and this is why, I mean, I think that the the Marxists in general are very good at providing strong critique of that and very good at giving us ideas in a general sense about what that means to embrace that, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you could do whatever you wanted to do as long as your, your needs are being met. Um, but, uh, it, it's difficult for me. I, I a hundred percent agree with you. It's hard for me to understand what the, the extractable in saints row for, right? What is the extractable activity or impulse that actually allows me to get out of, of the neoliberal logic, uh, rather than just, you know, because, because the, the cycle here would suggest hedonistic utopia gets us out of neoliberalism and then we're just drawn back in, mm-hmm. um, but I think what you're pointing out, and I 100% agree, is that it does not seem to me as if we have ever escaped neoliberalism in any point of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even fantastically, I don't think that we've escaped it. So, so I don't know. Um, you know, uh, this this chapter kind of cites Marcuse a couple times, um, kind of a, a famous Frankfurt School um, theorist, um, and probably the one of the few who um, was really su- super influential on. Uh, American radicals in the 1960s. Angela Davis, I think, worked with Marcuse uh, at mm-hmm. one point. Um, he was very uh, active on the West Coast and kind of giving talks and, and educating people and things like that, where Adorno uh, and the like were East Coast or even back in Germany uh, doing teaching and things like that, or actually not even liking teaching, really. Um, but that's all to say, um, I don't know. This of all four, uh, all four of the of the chapters, this is the one that is least clear to me about how it attempts to quote unquote escape the mm-hmm. the conditions of capital. Okay, well, that was just a question I had for you uh, because yeah, I, I do not have a good answer. Okay, uh, the next chapter is on Grand Theft Auto Five, uh, which is a game that I have played but not extensively. I've I've played oh god I've probably played through that game two times three times. Wow. Well, I played it when it originally came out. I think I reviewed it, and then uh, I played it again when it came out again, and I also think I reviewed it again. Um, <laughs> so that, that'll do it to you. Uh, playing Grand Theft Auto Five will do it. Um, this is a chapter that's about Grand Theft Auto Five as... Uh, well, actually, let me take one step back. What's interesting to me is this is a book that is ostensibly about, as the title would suggest, ideology in the virtual city. Mm-hmm. I totally understand that in the case of Steelport. I totally understand that in the case of No More Heroes. And I kind of get it in Persona 5. This is the one that is most confusing to me about that because uh, Grand Theft Auto 5, I think, is 100% you know, about cities in a particular kind of way, right? Like it really is about navigating the social strata, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in, in uh, the Jamesonian, the other kind of way that cognitive mapping gets talked about, right? In these allegories, as I said in the last episode on Kaleha, you know, uh, one of the better examples of that reading to me or thinking of cognitive mapping um, in practice is Neuromancer. So the idea that on the ground are all the people and then high up in space are the richest people possible. It spatializes the economic relationship in a very clear way, right? Workers mm-hmm. on the bottom, uh, the the capitalists, the most capitalist of capitalists on the very top, literally out of the Earth's gravity or, or out of most of the Earth's gravity in space. Um, so and so what I was expecting here was that kind of, of reading, especially being that it's a kind of Zizek and Jamesonian 
constellation here that's being brought upon. But the chapter on Grand Theft Auto V really doesn't even talk about the city proper, right? It's more about the characters that are in uh, Grand Theft Auto V and how they navigate almost the just the mission structure of that game. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Did did that stick out to you at all? Yeah, I mean this this chapter ends up being. Uh... I haven't played as much Grand Theft Auto V, so maybe it, it, it just didn't strike me as much or I didn't come at it with this idea like, oh, you could do a Jamesonian sort of thing here. Uh, this, this chapter is primarily about uh, cynical realism uh, or, or enlightened false consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, therefore, for that reason, ends up focusing on the characters rather than uh, the structures so much, right? Because, because each reading of uh, a game here is... Uh, trying to show a sort of subject position with relation to neoliberalism. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we end up focusing on the characters here, here more than um, one might expect, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I kind of, you know, at the end of the chapter, I I get it, but it seems like it is such a fruitful, if we're talking about the way that cities actually structure this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, structure our relationship with the game. I totally see how that works in Steelport, right? Because it's it delimits what what can be uh, competed over, right? Between the people and and uh, and and uh, I don't know the state, whatever, right? It, it structures the fantasy quite literally in a, in a in a materialist sense, mm-hmm. um, and it does a similar thing in Grand Theft Auto, but that's not really talked on. But but as you said, uh, I, I think the majority of this chapter, I think there's actually a really good reading of this, but it is. Again, a Zizekian reading, um, but dependent on Peter Sloterdijk's idea of cynical reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Sloterdijk is a German. I'm pretty sure he's German. Yes, um, he is. Uh, notably, uh, refused to appear on our show Too Much Future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I received a uh, very, very polite rejection uh, to be interviewed on Too Much Future um, but from Peter Sloterdijk. But... Um, uh, he wrote a book, I don't know, this is in the 80s probably when this book came out, The Critique mm-hmm. of Cynical Reason. Yeah, so yeah, Zizek, uh, Sublime uh, Object of Ideology is 1989, and he cites Sloterdijk there, so Sloterdijk gotcha. is at least 1985 or something. Yeah, so this is a big part of kind of G- early Zizek, um, and shows up still, I guess, in his idea. But the idea of cynical reason is that uh, Sloterdijk notes that in kind of Western, quote-unquote, right, so European in the United States, although I think he means mostly European, um, uh, political organizing ideology, whatever, there's a kind of, 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 um, attachment to, to, uh, political realism in it, right? Where they mm-hmm. say, where you say things like, oh, the world could be completely different, mm-hmm. but you know, we know that's not going to happen, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Bernie Sanders, that's a pie in the sky. That's mm-hmm. literally impossible. New green deal, literally mm-hmm. impossible. Let's be, let's be real. Let's mm-hmm. vote for the candidate who's going to be able to do the thing that's actually possible. Um, and let, let's let's go from there. Like, right. so let, let's cynical reason in action. Right. Um, yeah. It's what I s- talked about earlier with uh, with monarchy and divine right. Like, this mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I get so into Zizek being an early modernist, because if you if you understand that people don't have to, like, be really close with their ideology in order to enact it, things like uh, monarchy make a lot of sense because you go back and you read all of these uh, people talking about the king and so on and so forth. Uh, But there's a real strong sense of, like, yeah, sure, there have been societies that didn't have monarchs, but, like, where are they now? 
mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. anything, anything other than this, this could be real bad. Yeah, and, and you know, I guess another way to talk about it or another language for it would be a regression to the mean, right? Mm-hmm. That, that uh, within people's way of politically or ideologically thinking the world, you know, intentionally, right? I am thinking of the world in a different way than it is right now. There is a tendency, you know, in the kind of post-45 world with our, you know, with neoliberalism, basically, um, to regress to, well, we know how things are actually going to turn out. So let's just, you know, kind of beat them to the punch, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, as as you you have in your notes, Michael, um, uh, Zizek kind of puts this as that cynics enjoy this reluctant conformism, um, you know, where they can they can just kind of be, uh, 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 you know, you can just kind of give up a little bit. Right. Um, it's like, it, I know, I know that things would be better if we had a government that was going to, uh, you know, put money into these types of social programs or help this demographic overcome this kind of structural issue. I know that. I know that very well. I'm a very smart person. But at the end of the day, I just don't believe that the system can really make that happen. And so what I need to do is, and I I hate to say this, I hate to say it, I just got to vote for the person who is going to be the most helpful for my tax bracket. Sorry. Yeah. Right. It's that type of thing. Yep. And and so this is another way of describing neoliberal ideology, or it's a, or it's maybe a flavor profile within uh-huh. neoliberal uh, ideology. That, that's your uh, synesthetic moment for for this episode. Um, and the reading of of Grand Theft Auto Five is just the ways that it enacts that, right? So mm-hmm. so these are characters. Um, you know, you, you play as three different characters: Trevor, Michael, and uh, Franklin. Uh, over the course of the game and it's uh the the kind of what's happening in the game is this constant negotiation of quote unquote their capitalism versus the capitalism they're forced to enact due to the being blackmailed that's kind of a big part of the game mm-hmm. um and so uh there's kind of this push and pull of like what the system wants them to do what the man wants them to do but what they want to do but as with all of these chapters uh this kind of falls back apart um, and there's a kind of of, of falling back into neoliberalism uh, here that is cynical self-interest, right? So they are ultimately, at the end of the day, cynics about a world beyond capitalism. They embrace it, but they just want to do it for themselves and not for someone else, right? Mm-hmm. So again, we're seeing this kind of neoliberal or individualism that is, um, you know, uh, 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 the, the final alternative. Mm-hmm. What's what's interesting here, you know, a little bit of a wrinkle is that we're playing three different characters in the game. Um, so in some ways, the player is actually a collective. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is complicated. And also, again, you know, Michael, as you were saying, that that Zizekian kind of readings don't um, they don't thrive on detail, we can say. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of maneuvers that happen in this game to 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 make you kind of question where characters are aligning here, right? There there are three different ideas about why one might want to be a capitalist that are happening in this game. Franklin, who is is coming from you know a low income area, has a, a lot of uh, difficulty with gangs. Got a cool dog, um, you know, and basically his first mission is like uh, having to go repo a car, and he like is not happy about that. He's not happy about doing most things in the game, and so mm-hmm. you know there's this kind of racial capitalism at work you know what cedric robinson would call racial capitalism 
Um, there is Michael, who is literally just like the most capitalist asshole on on Earth. And then there's Thanks. Trevor, who is this purpose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you, uh, Michael, I just want to ask you, did you ever get involved in kind of a heat-like bank robbery at any point? <laughs> well, you know what? Grad school was a difficult time. and mm, Of course. Uh, but mm-hmm. then there's Trevor, right? Which is like this absolutely unfettered, ungovernable market ideology. Um, so that's all to say, I think there is room for a much deeper um, engagement. But again, that's not what this is after. This is about giving us some kind of tools for thinking about Grand Theft Auto V. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I will say here, though, is that this is the point in the book, uh, about halfway through, there is a uh, almost the exact halfway mark, actually, um, he is talking, Bales is talking about, uh, the game's depictions of women, um, mm-hmm. you know, as either, uh, sex workers or, well, actually just as sex workers, basically, or as kind of shrewish cheating wives. That's another kind of flavor here, um, of, of kind of dismissing women. But I bring that up because this was the point, uh, in the book where I was like, hold on, wait a minute. And I like flip to the back and I'm looking through the end notes and admittedly, this is a short book, you know, it's kind of a, uh, pop pressy kind of book, not a lot of citations in it, but, uh, there, there are two women cited in this whole book, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Jody Dean and Wendy Brown. Wendy Brown is just cited in a list of people who like talk about neoliberalism as Wendy Brown is often, you know, engaged with in that way. Um, Jody Dean gets a couple citations, uh, you know, very prominent Marxist critic. Um, and that's it, right? So there's no additional discussion of the the any number of Marxists or just labor thinkers uh, who are women um, or, or even people who are in the kind of cognitive capitalism world like Tiziana Terranova, people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I was like, oh, that's, you know, like... I think we probably could be doing a little bit better here. I think almost every scholar who was cited in this book is white. Um, And so, and I say that not to just be like, we got to dump the book, but I think that there is a a critical note here, right? And this maybe has to do with editorial as well. I don't don't put this all on the author, but a kind of a critical editorial note here would be that um, uh, neoliberalism and capitalism start to look really inescapable if all you are looking at are white dudes who are interested in focusing on ca- how capitalism is inescapable mm-hmm. um, and indexing that relationship and giving us kind of symptoms for that relationship. You know, even in engagement with someone like Cedric Robinson, right? I mean, gosh, uh, uh, the Black Radical Tradition came out how many years ago? 40 years ago? Yeah. Um, and uh, that might give us some additional kind of complications here. Uh, that might be productive for thinking outside of this kind of very symptomological set of readings. So mm-hmm. I, I say all that not just to criticize and say, oh, look, the citational apparatus is bad. I think the citational apparatus could be a lot better. But I, I also am pointing that out to say that an, a widened citational apparatus might actually give us more tools for thinking about how this is more complicated uh, or more uh, easily combated. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that it is, it, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's what I mean. I think that if, if you're looking to the same three people over and over and over again and then wondering why we can't get out of a structure that they are, are hyper interested in analyzing, you might want to look at some other people. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts about Grand Theft Auto 5, Michael? Uh, no. Okay. 
Have you played No More Heroes, the subject of Chapter 5? Uh, a million billion years ago, I played No More Heroes. This game came out in like 2008, which made me feel extremely old when I realized that. A hundred years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ah, in the before time. Yeah, the Wii. <laughs> remember that? Uh, yeah, I do. So I remember uh, the Wii. <laughs> uh, it's like all it's uh like an i'm spartacus scene where it's, yeah. i remember the we <laughs> no i remember the we uh so yeah no more heroes uh this is interesting because uh this is the game that so it's not uh it's not a well actually i guess technically grand theft auto 5 is not developed by uh americans right rockstar is is british um they're sort of in new york also. now though, so a yeah a little, little complicated but uh anyway yeah no so the the, the second the, the next two things uh in this book no more heroes and persona i think are interesting because they are both japanese developed games and i think mm-hmm. there there is uh an, another way that the argument of this book um could go in in some other directions and again like i'm not saying like this is a failure of the book because the book is up to something else uh but something to think about more is what it means for uh, Japanese developed games and sort of their relationship to, to ideology or or what have you and the city as well. Um, because the the assumption here is that because Japan is also a, a capitalist country, right? Japan is also subject to uh, neoliberalism. Uh that the this mode of argumentation is is going to be essentially the same. And I think in in to a certain extent that is true. Um, but I also think that there's something to be said about No More Heroes being a sort of knowing parody of America uh, in, in a similar way that uh, Grand Theft Auto kind of gets that reputation. But it's a very different type of parody. And then, of course, Persona 5 is itself like it is about Japan um, in a way that uh, I think could be unpacked a little bit more. Anyhow, No More Heroes as I already said, is a kind of it's it's Suda 51's kind of parody of open world games in, in a way, a kind of parody of Americans or Americanism in some ways. The main character is this guy named Travis Touchdown, who is a deeply, deeply nerdy. He's a huge loser, uh, but he also is very self-confident uh, and he has all of these various interests, right? He loves anime. He loves video games. He's he's this weird version of like, on the one hand, he is he is like the the of of the 2000s, right? He is the guy who is like on the anime message boards. He's posting on the something awful forums. Uh, he has this extensive knowledge of all of this like cultural sideshow circus stuff. Right about his favorite wrestlers and about his favorite TV shows and his favorite video games, mm-hmm. um, but he's also like, I don't know, this like slim dude with a cool outfit and like awesome hair and aviator shades. Uh, so he is on the one hand like a very very much a big loser, and on the other hand, very much a video game protagonist. Uh, and the the game is about him getting wrapped up in a secret world of ranked assassins where he is convinced by a woman named Sylvia in order she, she convinces him to kill someone who turns out to be like the 10th best ranked assassin in the world. 
Uh, and because he has killed the 10th best ranked assassin in the world, he becomes the 10th best ranked assassin in the world. So every assassin below him in this chain now starts coming after him. And the the obvious response to this is like, well, I'm tired of all these people below me trying to, you know, get at me. I just need to start working my way up the ladder. And so that this is the game, right, is uh, you tooling around this little open world city uh, and generating the resources necessary to pay Sylvia uh, to allow her like for her to let you know what your next mission is. Where is the next assassin that I have to kill so I can work my way up to to number one? Uh, and one of the critiques of the game as a game, and this is this ties into what I've said about um, uh, this type of Zizekian reading or analysis not being uh, so big on sort of specificity or details of reception or things like that. Uh, people hated this aspect of the game, that it was an open world, but the open world was basically empty. Hmm. There were only a, it wasn't like uh, the at this time, I think probably the closest approximation was Grand Theft Auto 4, which is, you know, filled with like little bars you can go to and play darts and this, that and the other. And there's also a lot of destruction you can get up to in, in a Grand Theft Auto game. Um mm -hmm blowing things up and whatnot. Uh, Santa Destroy, the city in No More Heroes, is an open world in the sense that it has like this big simulated space, uh, but it doesn't have all of the little diversions. All of the things that you go to are things that connect to the main plot. Uh, it's like you go to the job center and you have to do work and you get paid money to do the work and you use that money to pay Sylvia to get to kind of the next story mission. Hmm. The reading that emerges here then is that uh, Travis is a kind of uh, perfect uh, visualization of a neoliberal subject uh, who has given himself over to what uh, Bales calls escapist defeatism, which is what happens when, uh, as opposed to the cynic from Grand Theft Auto V, who looks at the world, sees that the world is kind of messed up, but then thinks, well, there's nothing to be done, so I'm just going to play the game and I'm going to play it really well, right? I'm going to thrive within this system, despite the fact the system is evil. Uh, the escapist looks at the world, sees that it's bad, uh, and then thinks, well, what do I do? There's nothing I can do, right? This, There is no outside to this. I cannot escape this. And so I will... Uh, divert myself with whatever pleasures I can find. Uh, and these are primarily pleasures that we get through mass media, popular culture, things like video games, anime, and, uh, you know, televised wrestling and so on and so forth. So Travis goes from uh, this kind of directionless, uh, uh, you know, I he, he lives in a motel room and doesn't have a lot going for him other than his hobbies, and then suddenly gets pulled into this madcap uh, assassin adventure that is explicitly likened to a video game right mm -hmm. it is it is uh over the top in how video gamey it is and so he his fantasy right the, the the objects that he attaches to the media objects become real in this way and his entire world gets restructured around the fantasy of escaping his real life into this video gamey world of assassins and that yeah, I think this is the best kind of close reading in this book um, mm -hmm. as far as because I think that, that that's the most kind of game studies -y, argument -y thing that's in here is that the structure of the game 
work does something for us, right? Because it's a familiar video game form. It allows us to kind of get into it. The, by us, I mean the player, right? It, but mm-hmm. it also does something for Travis, the character. <clears throat> it's experienced by him as this kind of video game thing. So there's this kind of pass-through that's going on, right? Where both this character and the player are experiencing a kind of tried-and-true structure, and they are thinking of it actively as that structure as opposed to, you know, any other video game that has that structure where it's just like, I'm a ninja and I'm going through all these different levels. Oh, I'm going through the waterfalls now and now I'm going through the castle and now I'm going through the other castle, right? Like, uh, it is specifically understood by Travis Touchdown to be a, a familiar structural form. And that to me is really interesting. Uh, yeah. I've had zero interest in No More Heroes until reading this. And now I'm a little bit interested. Well, and the big critique that gets leveraged from like the games press and like gamers at the time of No More Heroes release is that it has this big open world with nothing in it. And this is a perfectly Zizekian move that Bales does here. I really love this. Uh, and this is what I meant when I said that, you know, they they this type of analysis kind of skirts around uh, specifics of reception or what have you, because the answer to this open world being boring and full of uh, really nothing much to do and all that it does is like it's ways to generate money to get back to the main story missions. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Zizekian move here that Bales makes, the question is, is this not precisely the point? <laughs> right? Is not this is not this seeming failure of the game to be fun and interesting, in fact, part of its critique? Mm-hmm. Because this is escapist defeatism. You uphold the system because you still go to work every day and you make your money because you need that money in order to buy your uh, your Gundam model kits. Right. Uh, And pay for your Internet connection so you can still post on those message boards. Uh, You look at the world uh, and you realize that capitalism is is inescapable. And this is where Mark Fisher gets pulled in. Right. The idea that Travis Touchdown uh, lives in a world of capitalist realism. There's nothing outside of capitalism. Uh, What do you do then? Well, you find your escape hatches uh, through through media. And uh, that is, uh, you know, that is that is, of course, naturally why certain parts of this game are so not fun to play because they aren't supposed to be fun because this is Travis is uh, sort of desolation in the world without the fantasy of of the assassin uh, missions. Mm-hmm. The bulk of this chapter, Michael, or, or maybe the, the back half of this chapter is dedicated to psychoanalyzing Travis Touchdown himself. Mm -hmm. This is a fictional character in a video game. And I sent you this question when we were reading this book, you know, when we were preparing for the podcast. And I said, Michael, what is the value of psychoanalyzing fictional characters is if they were human beings Mm -hmm. because they are not real. Mm -hmm. They aren't complete psyches. They, They don't have the desires and functions and, uh, you know, instincts of a human being, they are fake. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, so what's the, you know, so I'm, I'm asking you that as a literary critic, as someone who cares about psychoanalysis, um, you know, I think that if you're not in that world, this move is weird. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a thing that, that makes a lot of sense on face. So, you know, without, you don't have to get into it for, you know, 20 minutes or anything, but could you give a sketch of why it is valuable from a critical standpoint to psychoanalyze something that does not exist? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, a premise that underpins this way of talking about character and specifically as, as uh, talking about characters through psychoanalytic lenses, um, as you say, characters aren't real. They're fake. Uh, 
the, the, the shortest answer to give to this uh, sort of objection uh, from a psychoanalytic viewpoint is that people are also fake. Mm-hmm. You are fake and I am fake, by which I mean um, the the thing that happens when we imagine a character like like you, you sit down and you're going to make up a fictional character. Um, you, the, the psychoanalytic argument is that you are doing exactly what the world or society does in order to construct a subject. You're taking kind of uh, in, in the case of Lacan, right, because because the subject, because your individuality is a function of language, um, then why wouldn't a character who exists entirely in language also to some extent uh, bear the markings of like a, a fruitful, like psychoanalytic reading, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, you may or may not agree with this because fundamentally, right, there is a, a kind of a homology being established between <clears throat> kind of the the ways that people get produced in the world as subjects from multiple perspectives uh, on account of multiple institutions and systems uh, versus, you know, whatever happens with a character in a novel. If it's just the person who wrote the novel responding to people that they have known or people that they've imagined, uh, you know, you, you don't have to necessarily truck with this, but this is fundamentally kind of the claim that is being made so much to the extent that, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that Lacan ends up talking about is the idea not of the symptom, but of the the symptome. Mm-hmm. And just to unpack that very quickly, uh, you know, in Freud, the symptom is a problem. It condenses uh, in in sort of distorted ways uh, some kind of underlying psychological issue. And the 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 point of psychoanalysis is to uh, relieve the symptom by finding out what is its repressed or latent content uh, through psychoanalytic therapy and making the person sort of like more whole or able to function in the world. Lacan, uh, who I've already said, um, reformats Freud in such a way that like the very function of being like a conscious person involves the kind of trauma of being separated from reality by language. Uh, For Lacan, there is no healthy, right? There is no kind of like normative, uh, like one way of existing in the world that's going to make everything all right for you. Uh, you are always going to be disappointed in your desire. That is just fundamentally uh, kind of the ontology of the human subject for Lacan. Um, And so he reformats the idea of the symptom into the idea of the symptome, which is uh, basically a symptom that is kind of the core of your identity, right? As as a person, like what is uh, the the symptom of your estrangement from your own ability to uh, enjoy reality? how do you build a personality around that in a way that is going to make you functional in, in some format? And synthome uh, is a pun. Uh, but one of the things that uh, it is punning on in French is like synthome, like which means false man or synthetic man. Right. So the idea that there is no like real you, you are always uh, a kind of um, weird bundle of language and neuroses. Uh, and it's really just a matter of finding the right balance of language and neuroses to to uh, be basically functional within your circumstances. Mm-hmm. So what's the value there, Michael? Uh, it means you can talk about Hamlet as if he's a real person. Mm, it's always about Hamlet. Then, right. That's <laughs> why they uh, invented it. Uh, but yeah, for real, right? It, it allows that kind of traffic between uh, what one of the things that you talked about at the beginning of the episode of uh, looking at 
sort of the the situations presented in fiction and understanding them as allegories for the situations in which we find ourselves in real life. So mm-hmm. Hamlet's crisis of knowing what the ghost is saying to him or what he's supposed to do about it can be read as an allegory for um, our own confusion being thrust into a world where uh, we have various institutions telling us different things about how reality works or, uh, you know, Hamlet's delays, his, his uncertainty about what action should be taken can be read as uh, our own ambivalence in the face of neoliberal ideology, where we know that there's a problem, but we can't really suss out the contours of it and we don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this all, uh, I mean, the, you know, just to, to reiterate at the end, right, that this all falls into escapist defeatism, right? Like Travis mm-hmm. Touchdown can't get out of it. At the end, there's this kind of reading of, of or, or I guess the reading of Travis Touchdown is that he is, it's it's just the death drive. <laughs> um, you know, he is yearning for self-annihilation at the end. Uh, and that's kind of the work of the game too. Right. Um, and that's one so, of the follow throughs of, of Lacan, right? Is that because desire Um, Because alienated desire is a fundamental feature of what it means to be a human subject, the only way that thing will stop, right, the only way we will truly achieve, like, a cessation or satiation of desire is death. Mm -hmm. So that's what, really, that's what Travis Touchdown is yearning for, even as he is uh, slaughtering all of of these assassins. What he would rather have is, you know, someone uh, slaughtering him, really. Uh, Huge mistake not uh incorporating tony hawk's american wasteland into this chapter <laughs> subtitled the city as wasteland but i digress chapter six michael have you persona? played persona five i have not played persona five me neither mm-hmm. so i just gotta take it on faith i don't think i'll ever play a persona game they're too long yeah they're very long i don't have that kind of time in my life just just not in the JRPG uh, aspect of my life right now. I'll play a JRPG all day long, but I need it to be, you know, 40 hours of core content. I don't <laughs> think it, I, I just don't have 90 hours of core content in my life. Um, but uh, the, the this is the, the subtitle of this one is Sidious Prison, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of centered on the way that that persona 5 works which is that they basically these these uh ragtag group of teens find out that uh you can go into a thing called the metaverse Mm -hmm. and you can find people's uh kind of um fixations and their ways of thinking about themselves Mm -hmm. and you can go and fight those things as if they are dungeons Mm -hmm. and then in doing so you can impact the real world i mean there's a lot of explanation that actually goes on there I can't check this against my own experience because I've not played this video game, but that seems to be what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the the key word for this chapter, the thing that they fall back on, is reformism, um, mm-hmm. because the idea in this in this game, or the way that Bales is reading this game, is that these these teens are able to fundamentally change the behaviors of people in the world which is good in a, in a theoretical sense because uh, if people are doing bad stuff you can make, make them do good stuff but on the other hand they they are never able to um, to think of those behaviors or to think that the structures that those behaviors in uh, are, are within might be worth criticizing so for example one of the characters you fight slash reform is uh, 
meant to be the prime minister of Japan, or, or they're going to be elected the prime minister of Japan. And the game does not allow us to think about, say, for example, the structure of Japanese economics and uh, how it privileges, you know, uh, the the prime minister of Japan. That's just an example. But, right, so uh, another example they use is, I think, their gym teacher, mm-hmm. who's a real jerk. Um, and so... Uh, you know they're able to make him stop being a real jerk, but not able to reform the the school in order to uh, to get it away from privileging him as a kind mm-hmm. of ideal figure, right? So the general societal structure that people are within not critiquable or changeable within Persona Five, but the behaviors of individual people are. Mm-hmm. And for Bales, that is insufficient. Exactly. That is, yeah, that's that's really the the idea that underpins, at least as, as as Bales is putting forth this game, of course, which I have not played, is that the the structures themselves are fine. It is the fact that corrupt or uh, imperfect people inhabit those structures that makes society go wrong, right? All all sort of social problems are a result not of the actual institutions that constitute society. Uh, but the fact that the people who are running these institutions just aren't good enough for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Yep. Um, there are a thousand real world arguments that kind of get made in the, the exact same way. Um, th- this is actually the point too, where I, um, where I was like, I really wish there was an analysis of anything that like gets out of this deadlock. Mm-hmm. Like, like I know that this is the Zizekian way. Mm-hmm. And that that it's fundamental as part of the analysis that you, you you can't get out of it right. But Zizek at least engages with people like Lenin, right? He he engages with uh, people who are doing criticism and and presenting ideas about how you do break the deadlock, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that that's part of at least Zizek, right? He doesn't engage with very much work that escapes the deadlock, right? But but he at least engages with ideas. Um, I guess that's the problem with kind of stopping at the Zizek, right? In your kind of chain of of reference, mm-hmm. uh, is that if you stop with Zizek, you really don't get any any way out. Um, you know, I would love to have seen an additional chapter in this book that dealt with something that explicitly, or any kind of game that explicitly dealt with collectivism or advocated for collectivism in some kind of way, because it would allow us to see like how do games that are act more actively advocating for this kind of thing, how do they fall back into it? Exactly. I think that yeah. would have been really interesting. Um, there's an interesting critique of, of kind of narrative destiny at the end of this chapter, mm-hmm. basically where Bales says um, it's not even just that these characters in their narrative decisions or in the, in the movement of the narrative um, that they end up falling back into neoliberalism via reformism. It's not just that. It's that the very structure of video game narrative uh, with a lack of choice or in kind of hard coded uh, change it, you know, or uh, borders to it, that hard coding of borders of, of narrative uh, decision making or whatever that feeds us back into a system of just kind of accepting the baseline of society. Um, I think there's some weird implicit stuff going on there between, you know, kind of quote unquote linear JRPGs, Japanese RPGs and quote unquote more choice based WRPGs or Western RPGs that I don't Mm -hmm. think is really examined here in the thing. But I think that also if I have played Persona 5, I might have more uh, interesting ideas or or more fine grained ideas about um, what's going on in this chapter. But um, I think it's... I. Oddly enough, I think the argument in chapter six is fairly linear. <laughs> Get it? 
Uh, yeah. You know, I think it follows the the format pretty pretty strongly. I don't really have much else to say about it unless you do, Michael. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing I'll just point out that, I, that is sort of interesting is that the way the Persona games work traditionally is uh, this weird mixture of like otherworldly JRPG, like fantasy monster stuff um, mm-hmm. and more down to earth, like uh, social simulation kind of things. You're usually a teenager. You're usually in high school and the game is split between you like getting up in the morning and going to class and then after class deciding who you're going to hang out with or if you're going to go shopping or if you're going to go there or there um, and uh, building connections with various characters who are your classmates. Uh, And then the second movement of the game is about like disappearing into this allegorized other world where you're, uh, you know, fighting JRPG battles and messing around with uh, (laughs) people's innermost thoughts and desires. Uh, and one of the things that is interesting uh, in the ways that in the way that Bales lays this out uh, is that it, this is neoliberal in the sense that, you know, you want as the player, um, but also the characters want to be good neoliberal subjects in that they want to be able to divide up their time between school and hanging out and building social links and going to this place and having fun. Right. They're, they're trying to do the neoliberal thing of being a good citizen and sort of maximizing uh, their their enjoyment of life. Uh, and weirdly enough, it, as opposed to Travis Touchdown's kind of situation, uh, where the, the gamey structure is what intervenes to to save him, uh, the, the deadlines for, I gotta get into this guy's head and change his fundamental relationship to reality by a certain date or I'm not going to get a good ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to like those things become the imposition on uh, your actual neoliberal functioning, right? Is like disappearing into this allegory, allegory other world uh, becomes the the thing that is less fun, actually, than just being a good neoliberal subject. Yeah, I, I guess it's interesting. I don't know if if Bale's phrases it this way, right? But it's interesting like, to think of it through um, the lens of work, right? He does. The whole metaverse stuff starts feeling just like a necessary chore. It's mm-hmm. like, I just I just want to go fishing with these people, okay? I don't want to go fight some sort of mind demon. Yeah, and I, I, I get a sense, too, that, that was, that's kind of the vibe around that game. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that dungeons and boss fights and things start getting really uh, laborious. Mm-hmm. Um, you get it? Laborious? <laughs> because it's working, it's a chore? Um, I I see here too this is something I I didn't make a note of but I thought was interesting uh, in the book Uh, you have a a note about the ethics of this yeah well that's part of what you were talking about sort of the the linear structure right is that Mm -hmm. so like all of the main characters in Persona 5 get together because by this point everyone's jumping into the metaverse and like going into people's minds and restructuring their fantasies and desires Um, and so everyone gets together and they're like all right, we like (laughs) We reformed our gym teacher. Who are we going to invade the mind of next? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, Bales brings up that a couple of things. One, this is all scripted, right? There's there's never a question that this is what we're going to do. Like that this is how we're going to like we have, we have discovered there's another world. And what we are going to do is like invade people's minds and start like changing their their fundamental fantasies about reality. Um, but the, the reason or. What ends up happening then 
is uh, it almost feels arbitrary, right? It's like, so like, wait a minute, why these people? And also like, to what extent is like, are, are we, and he gets to this by the end, right? That uh, rather than being people who are uh, sort of making the world a better place, the the phantom thieves the the main characters of persona 5 end up becoming like the corrective force of ideology right here 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 are all the ways in which neoliberal ideology is failing how do we how do we get into people's minds to make them better neoliberal subjects is is mm-hmm. what ends up happening with from the from the reformist mindset mhm and i guess they do a good job i don't know i don't know how the game ends i mean there are multiple endings so <laughs> oh god it depends. A, it depends on how many times you you went fishing or shopping. Hmm. Well, I like that part. That sounds great. <laughs> um, and then there's a conclusion, which is in some ways a reiteration, and in some other ways is like a, a what is to be done mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I wrote one note, and but you wrote a lot of notes, so maybe yeah. maybe you want to talk about the ending of the book. Well, so the, the the conclusion of this book is actually where it gets the most interesting for me. And I'm saying this um, as someone who has read a lot of Zizek and has read the Jameson and like has is, is familiar with kind of this way of looking at uh, cultural objects and producing readings of them. Right. It's it's I'm not saying it's easy. Right. I'm saying it's a thing that I have been trained to do and I have done for so long that like I do it while I'm watching TV commercials. Like mm-hmm. it's just like a background process in my head of me producing various Zizekian readings of, of things that I see. Um, uh, but you see, Michael, it was the commercial watching you. Uh-huh. uh-huh I can great. do it too. Look at that. Easy. <laughs> Boom. It's not, in <laughs> fact, the commercial selling me. Mm. Um, <clears throat> are you not the product? But, uh, uh, what Bales does here at the end that is really interesting is that he says, OK, so I've talked about these kind of four p- potential responses to neoliberalism. They are not separate. These all reinforce each other, right? Because neoliberalism is kind of this uh, diffuse background ideology, it requires all of these perspectives to kind of be happening uh, at once through various people uh, to continue going on. And this also means that a person is not necessarily just going to like it's it's not like you can go out into the world and be like, oh, that person is a cynical realist and that person is an escapist and that person is a reformist. Like you could do that. But really, the, the, the truth of the matter is that people are going to adopt different parts of these perspectives depending on where they are and what they're doing and what their goals are. Like we will move among these subject positions uh, through neoliberalism at various points in time. Uh, and then he uh, sort of maps out like, oh, well, there, there's, there, there are axes. Uh, so, you know, some of these are more pessimistic, some are more optimistic, some are more responsibility oriented, some are more enjoyment oriented, some are resentment oriented, some are more celebratory. Uh, so, uh, you know, how do how do we sort of map these things out and how do they kind of mirror each other and reinforce each other along these kind of binary structures? Uh, and then sort of gesturing toward what happens if we start putting these terms together in ways that uh, have not been evidenced so far. Uh, I think that's this is this is the part where I like if it were an academic book like this would be I, I would hope the meat of the argument of what happens when we start 
kind of considering these subject positions um, in tandem with one another, right? What, ha what, what, what can we generate uh, by throwing these readings against one another? And is there some sort of, um, is, is there an alternative, right? Or is there uh, some sort of uh, deeper analysis uh, to be gleaned from considering how these things operate uh, together in the same instance, in the same person or in the same object? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what I thought was interesting there is that this almost, uh, it's interesting for this to, for for those things to be kind of uh, mapped down on axes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because the Jamesonian move, right, and the, the kind of uh, Zizekian Marxist move, right, is the Grimus square, right? So you mm -hmm. have to, like, figure out what is being suppressed underneath other things, right? What is the opposite and what is the opposite of the opposite? Mm -hmm. um and that that is not that's not how these things function in this kind of like capitalist landscape uh for bales um going to a much more i think earlier model of like direct oppositions mm -hmm. so i'll just read uh the the end of this book uh or not the very end but sort of one of the last uh few sentences which i think encapsulates uh, a lot of it so quote um this is about these games about these media objects it is their sense of incompleteness because to return to one of the things that uh, we talked about earlier, all of these, all of these power fantasies, all of these games, which are power fantasies uh, for Bales are trying to resolve the contradictions of being a neoliberal subject of mm -hmm. wanting to be powerful, but also being uh, divested of power by various, uh, you know, forces and institutions at every turn. Um, all of these games present a power fantasy that is supposed to kind of paper over that sense of dissatisfaction with the world. Uh, but at the same time, it can never quite do it uh, in that Lacanian way. So it is their sense of incompleteness rather than any political ideal that functions as a demand for a deeper social critique and more convincing answers. So to pop out, uh, you know, in, in response to like the reformist argument being put forth in Persona 5, um, you know, you come out of that game and you're like, well, all they did was just change the people, right? Like, what if what if like the, the political situation of Japan itself, what if the political structure of Japan itself uh, is in fact what causes uh, this kind of disaffection and disengagement that allows uh, the most uh, cynical and corrupt people to, to take power? Yeah, I mean, you know, another way of, of kind of reframing it is is that neoliberalism has us think that there's no such thing as structure and that humans make the world, right? So it's mm -hmm. all of our, you know, biases or ideas or selfishness or whatever that creates the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Marxists and various other kinds of structural thinkers uh, would say something perhaps a, much more complicated, which is that the world creates us. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you are the product of a thousand different intersecting things that smash into each other and then produce you as a replicating subject, right? So mm -hmm. we are not only individuals, right? Although I guess we are individuals. We are agents of social reproduction, right? So this is mm -hmm. all through Sarah. Um, we are the product of ideological state apparatuses, uh, repressive state apparatuses, things like that, right? So, um, uh, you know, we are the product of thinking about what could happen to us if we do not conform to society, as well as what would benefit us if we don't conform to society. We're the byproduct, you know, the product of um, the things that we receive from the family, home, school, and office, to, to quote Foucault uh, in a much different context. Um, so, so that's all to say, right, that that uh, that kind of formative break, right, that fundamental break of uh do you, you know, uh, generate yourself kind of without cause uh, into mm -hmm. the world as an individual and enter into market relationships? 
that's neoliberalism, right? So each individual person is not the product of Japanese society and in Persona 5, but their own, uh, you know, whatever, uh, greed and anger and hubris and stuff like that, as opposed to what you're saying, right? Persona 5, if it thought about the way that, for example, the education system uh, interacts with systems of prestige in Japan, it might have a more mm -hmm. complicated answer to, uh, you know, what you need to jump into in the metaverse in order to really change things. Right. And so that is, uh, it is the, the, the final like closing gesture of this sort of analysis and this is, uh, something Bill says somewhere, um, but he puts it really well is looking at a, a cultural object and finding what it is that it cannot think, mm -hmm. right? What is it that it, that it cannot think about? What is it that falls out of its picture of the world? Um, and how does that gesture toward, uh, uh something else, right? A, a different way of, of things, um, being critiqued or perceived or restructured. I want to I want to see a persona uh, like game, free game idea. I'm giving this away. Anyone okay. can have it. Persona like game in which you jump into um, bank accounts or you jump into like dead capital, so like big machines and factories, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and then you like fight the the ideology that keeps them coherent to one another and in a in a specific mapped relationship with the world, and then you uh, dismantle capitalism that way. All right, there you go. Free game. Free uh, game idea. It's for you. I, you know what they call me, idea guy. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard, I don't know if you've heard this, Michael, but I've heard that that's the hardest part. Having making ideas. games. It's just having mm -hmm. the ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's a free one. I, you know, anyone can have it. You know, if, if you want it, you're going to have to send yourself a, a, a self-addressed stamp envelope in the mail with, with the idea written on it, though, so people know that you took it then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cameron, where can people find you? You can find me. Just look at at range touch on the internet on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Rangetouch.com is the best place to get all the information about me and and uh, all the shows we do. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to learn about uh, what we got going on at $3 a month. You can access to uh, the, our show notes for this show, as well as uh, the podcast feed for our other show, too much future, where we similarly think way too hard about the fallout games, sometimes mm -hmm. in unrewarding ways. And uh, for $5 a month, just $5 a month, you get access to a whole other podcast stream of uh the range touch monthly show which uh, i do with danny and as well as the bonus episodes for just king things our free podcast where we read through the works of stephen king in publication order michael did you know that currently when people hear this there are going to be three episodes of bonus content of us talking about stephen king works like the carry 2013 adaptation mm -hmm. return to salem's lot from the 1980s mm -hmm. and then the Shining TV series from 1997, which I've watched and we haven't talked about, but is wild as all hell. <laughs> I am two thirds of the way through. It is something. Just to preview that conversation, that's where I think that's going to be a solid two and a half hour episode of trying to figure <laughs> out what 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 is happening. <laughs> um, but uh, where can people find you, Michael? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. Got anything to plug? No, other than all of the all of the other shows that I do at Range Touch. Mm -hmm. And you got your uh, oh, yeah. Elsinore Let's Play. I was going to say, yeah, if you if you liked the, the one time I mentioned Hamlet in this podcast, but also all of the times that I mentioned the Divine Right of Kings, 
you might enjoy uh, the Let's Play of Elsinore that I am doing uh, with Cameron as as my little co-pilot, I guess. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I've got uh, I'm like the uh, you know, like when you got a little kid and you give them like the fake steering wheel attached to the dash. Uh huh. It, it, but you're the adult and you got the real st- steering wheel and you're doing it and they're pretending to drive. That's me. I'm like, yep, that's kid. exactly what that show is like. That's the vibe. Mm hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there will be, I think, two episodes of that out by the time that you're hearing this. And so check that out. Mm-hmm. That's on YouTube.com slash Range Touch alongside a bunch of other stuff that we do. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, we don't know what our next book is, do we? We do not. And we will decide. Um, I guess hopefully uh, if I remember, I'll let you know on Twitter. Yeah, if you want to uh, discover what the next book is, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Like I said, at Range Touch. If you want to talk about this episode or anything else we do at Range Touch, you can go to the Discord. There's an invite link down in the description below this episode. So just click that, take you right to the Discord. You can, uh, you know, talk about ideology or neoliberalism or uh, how we misunderstood Persona 5. Yeah. And so until next time, folks, remember, the social is predicated on its exclusions. 